Gentlemen, I would like to discuss uh, an idea which we've begun exploring in knowing yourself. And the first point we mentioned is a strange Kiddush in regard to what purity and impurity is. We described Kedusha as a person who's in touch with the world around him and Tuma as a person who's out of touch with the world around him, whether it be intellectually or socially or just he doesn't get it. So that's not social, lack of social um, intelligence. It, it can go much deeper than that. It can go to the fact where it's a certain resistance to, to, be, to be aware and awake to what's going on around me in the world. And obviously the, the more heightened your perception is, the more closer to Kedusha you are. The ultimate level is that you become so perceptively aware that you can actually pick up the, the, not only the emotional energies around you, but ulti- ultimately the spiritual energies around you. So you're not only aware of, wow, that guy is upset or happy or sad when you're in an interaction, but you're also able to see a little bit or a lot beyond that. Let's just fetch a question now from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. That was a fantastic well, topic. Oh, it's getting more than that. Sorry, that was enough for me. Yeah, Go on. Do it, do it, do it. No, no. Like this, to get Kudushi, how do you get the Kudushi? Do you l- have to be involved in Yiddish cup? No, just be Hefka and have a good time and it just comes automatically. So yes, you do! The question is that there's degrees of, of in-tuneness. Fine, yeah, define that in-tune. Okay, so in-tune. There are very people there, are definitely people who are socially aware and in touch with what's going on around them and they, 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 there are a lot of people, they're generally female, who pick up the social energy quickly and very well, yeah. just naturally, um, which, which is a proximity to Kedusha, but Kedusha then takes that one step further and it says you don't only pick up the um, social energies, the emotional content of a given dynamic, but you're actually able to see... Um, call it the, the spiritual quality attached to, to what's going on. So a person who's spiritually sensitive and a person who's emotionally sensitive will be able to feel what the person is experiencing. Persons who's, who's spiritually sensitive will be able to, to pick up on... Um, I'll give you an example. There's a letter written by a person that once met the <coughs> altar of Nevada. The altar of Nevada was, was, was an incredible... Uh, in this book. The ultimate of Vardik who wrote this book, Madragas Adam, was, was an astonishing giant of a man. And he, he, he was, in terms of his approach to life, people would look at him as being absolutely extreme. He would go into the forest with no way of feeding himself or finding means of surviving, and he would survive on what was called bitochen, faith. Not only that, he not only engaged in this faith, what's called in Yiddish, bitochen tek, days of bitochen, by himself, but he actually used to introduce his students to the same idea. They would go into the forest and uh, they would rely that Hashem would provide for them. It's an extreme in bitochen. But he felt that, that it was kind of an obvious step because if you actually take it seriously and you accept the fact that the only reason you can breathe right now is because Hashem is allowing you to breathe, so then it's pretty obvious that well, if you can give me the air to breathe, you can give me food to eat as well. I mean, I'm g- only getting the air because he's giving it to me. So then what difference if he gives me air or he gives me food? Either way, it's as much of a chidush or as le- less of a chidush. 
So when a person actually makes a transition where you actually take the whole thing very seriously, so you don't really need to take food with you because even when you get the food yourself, it's just an illusion. It's not really you getting it. It's not giving it to you. So wow, what difference if he gives it to me here, gives it to me there. So he, he, did, he was an astonishing man. But he, like, he lived that way. I mean, it's not like he went into the forest once and then never came back because it didn't work. <laughs> he would go for long periods of time, regularly. And he, he writes in his, in his farm, he gives a, his, his presentation is so clear, it's so powerful, it's so strong. Uh, difficult to live up to, and uh, uh, I'm not saying he's his only approach, and maybe it's, a, it's a radical approach, but it's definitely fascinating. So a man meets him. A man meets him, and um, he says, they go for, this person writes about who he was. It's like, it was, it was a child's meeting, he says, I looked at his eyes, and he must have been, it was hard to tell his age, because his faith, his face, sorry, was so youthful that he exuded the vitality of life. His eyes, you couldn't even gauge their color. They were sometimes blue, they were sometimes gray, and he had this youthful buoyance about his entire being. As a man that lived in absolute deprivation and extreme poverty his entire life. So one would have thought that you'd have this broken shell of a person, and on the contrary, he was like the most alive being that one had ever met. So they're walking down the road, and he said the conversation was mundane. And they casually pass a couple linked arm in arm, laughing with their heads back. And he looks at them and he says, do you see, do you, do you see that couple? He says, yes. He says, they're not happy. He says, they're laughing to fool us, and they're laughing on the deepest level to fool themselves. So that's, that's a keen insight. And it's an insight which p- penetrates a little bit beyond the emotional presentation of what's going on. To see that there's something on a deeper level which is lacking. A person who has got spiritual insight, so you don't only see the emotions, but you see the emotions are just a little bit of an inside view of a person, but if you go deeper, then you see a neshama. And often a person who can be emotionally, at this point in time, happy, but there's this vacuum underneath the surface, which he himself is completely unaware of. And if you say to him, are you happy? He'll be convinced that he is. But what I would suggest is, even though it may not be experiential, but if you see the progression in time, that the kind of joy that a person can get to and reach, that is an external experience which is unparalleled to what true sympathy is about. There's a strange Gemara. There's a Gemara in, in Brochus, which you probably all know. Um, there's a Brochus. Is there a Brochus? There's a very disconcerting... There's a very disconcerting Gemara in Brochus um, that, that, that says the following. I'll go to Brochus and we'll see what it says. Sponsored by so there's a, there's a, there's a University of Arizona. Take your point, gentlemen. Decorum, decorum. So the Gemara, and this is a strange Gemara. Uh, the Gemara is discussing it in the beginning of the of the um, fourth peric of fifth peric, sorry, of of Brochus, and And the Gemara takes us to a to a wedding scene, which is generally a pretty happy place, isn't it? Chosn and Kala getting married, and uh, it was the Hilula de Mar Berei de Ravina. So Mar, the son of uh, Ravina, was getting married, and the Rabbanon approached the great Amora Rav Hanuna, and they said to him, Lishri Lon Mar, 
please Rav Hamnuna, will you sing for us? In other words, it's a wedding, it's a wedding, it's a wedding feast, and the wedding feast would be accompanied by, uh, for want of a better word, entertainment. And so they said to Rav Hamnuna, will you sing for us a song? So Rav Hamnuna said, responded, and he said, Armalahu vailon de misnan, vailon de misnan. Woe to us that we're going to die, woe to us that we're going to die. Now that's not the cheeriest message I've ever heard. Like it's uh, quite, quite, quite fatalistic, I would say. Well, what to do? What to do? And not only that, but if you say, oh, Rav Hamnuna was just like, you know, he's like dampening the, the atmosphere. You're not allowed to do that. There's a mitzvah that's so great a mitzvah that you stop learning to do it. You know, many people stop learning to do things for other reasons, but you stop learning to, 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 to go misamech, chosen, and kala. Um, meaning it's, it's to, to make them happy. So you're not, make, you're not there to make them depressed, you're there to make them happy. So what do you say to them? Okay, Rabbi Sayyam, just some words in order of the chosen. You can just imagine the Sheva Brocha's speech. You know, we look at this young couple who've just got married and we think, what a pity, they're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, not a great, you know, look, it may beat the, you know, Isha and Isha Firevort, which is like, you know, so cliched, it's become a cliche cliche. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, still, it's not, it's, not, it's not the serious message that you want to hear the chasna, is it? So what was what was Ramana thinking when he said this? Is a mitzvah to be Musamakala. Clearly this was the way he wanted to make them happy. Now, how do you make a person happy by telling them they're gonna die? So the Alt of Khan takes the fascinating approach to this. He says that the truest expression of joy, okay, joy is a feeling of liberation. It's a feeling of expansion. The way a person experiences joy physically in his body is he literally tries to extend his limbs as far as they will go that's why you jump up and down You're, yes yes it's called expansion expansion as opposed to sadness which is contraction <laughs> you raise your voice everything that you can you make it bigger you make your movements bigger your normal um, sphere of movement is limited you break the boundaries your voice is higher and louder because you're so happy that's joy it's expansive. Joy is expansive. Now, obviously, the greater the end point to which you can extend yourself to, meaning the more you can expand, the happier you are. The more you can come out of yourself, the more you can feel that you are not limited. Essentially, simcha is an expression of, of, of it's a liberating feeling. It's a feeling whereby your, your self becomes, becomes loose, it becomes big, it becomes, becomes expansive. Um, I don't know how to, to properly express it, but we, we've all experienced joy. You want to give out to people. You want to almost anything which is, which is putting out into the world. You want to sing, you want to hug people. Experiences, joy is an experience where you want to, when you, where you want to, you want to be out of yourself to the degree that you can. It's almost when a person's happy, my own personal desires just fade into oblivion, not because I'm a big giver that I'm controlling my desires. It's just not. It's just not relevant. One, one of the one of the experiences of joy that I had, for example, was at my daughter's wedding. I had to make an effort to make sure that I ate. 
Now generally men food are very good buddies. It's hard to separate between me and my meal. But it, it wasn't an issue. It was like I have to make because the joy was so extensive that it just it didn't it didn't that wasn't that wasn't there. It wasn't there because see that's true. It depends really on the object of what you're getting happy about. Clearly a happiness which is which is focused on a minor event which ultimately will come to conclusion is going to be limited by its source of origin so if I get happy about the fact that uh, I was fishing and I caught a fish so the happiness will be expansive but not to the same degree as if I'm as happy as when I buy a house simply because the experience of catching a fish is much more short-lived than the experience of having a house. The longer lasting, the more um, extensive the source of the joy is, the greater the degree of the expansion. So if something happens to me which is a joy which actually never comes to an end, so the experience of Simcha is one which never comes to an end. What Rav Amnon is saying to the Chosen and Kala was realize that the body that you have is purely a utensil. It's, a, you, it's an instrument for unleashing a spiritual connection to this temporal realm. Now I'm going to try to say that again in English. Um, the, 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 way we relate, the way we relate to the physical, physical being is the physical being is uh, it, it's, it's very limited. It's very limited and therefore you can't experience the ultimate joy in the world of, in the world of time and space. You can't because you can experience joy, you can be happy. But you're happy, there's always going to be an expiry date on your happiness. It's going to come to an end, inevitably. So the, the, the way you can cheer up a person in the most fundamental way is to allow them access to happiness which is absolutely unending. Now if you think about what a marriage is, a marriage is an eternal union. Because the Hachosan the, and Kala, they unite their beings and become a greater entity than could ever have been present prior to that moment. Uh, an individual man and woman can't bring into the world what they can when they're married both in a physical sense of a child but also in a in a metaphysical sense that the synergy between the two couple generates the existence of a being that wasn't present beforehand just like they can together working in unison produce a child they can, together, working in unison, live life on a completely different dimension to the one they did before, provided their intent in their connection is not selfishly motivated. It's not bound within space and time. When their love is transcendent, that they appreciate about one another, something which is not, you know, that she looks good or he's a real hunk, but rather, but rather that there's something, there's something beyond, they have a value system that they connect to, and that's where they are bound, their goals and their ideals, that becomes the glue that sticks them together. So then this union essentially is a new person, a new person is created that is connected to a realm beyond the physical. Something else has happened, something else transpired. And therefore, the way you hammer that home is you say, this 
temporal realm that you're inhabiting called your bodies, so that's going to go away. And therefore, what you have is so much beyond that, and therefore your joy will never end. And that's what Rav Amnon is. says, out of comment when he said, Vailanda Mista, Vailanda Mista, we're going to die, we're going to die, meaning, and therefore, since we're going to die, we can ex- access a joy which is far beyond the physical world. It's an interesting understanding, but that's what I mean by Kedushin is not just emotional awareness. It's an awareness which extends beyond, beyond emotional stimulation. Okay, again, I, I, I don't feel that I did justice to explaining that because I felt it was a little bit too lofty and I wasn't able to, to express it clearly enough. But let's, let's, let's move on a little bit and perhaps another time we'll be able to retrace our steps and say that in a more coherent fashion or at least a more tangible fashion. Let's go back to what Ravalbi speaks about when he speaks about another aspect of Kedusha. And this one catches us off guard. He describes what happened when the Jews were standing around the mountain of Sinai. Now, you think, this is, this is a, possibly one of the most climactic moments in Jewish history. It was the meeting place between the creator of all worlds and him sharing the message that he wanted to share with humankind. Him represented, let's say. I don't know if that's an accurate word, but let's use it. By the Jewish people. They got to a stage of, of elevated status whereby they were ready and able to accept direct prophecy, every man, woman, and child, from the eternal being. That, that, that kind of experience must be, you know, it was a, a synesthetic experience, meaning that they were able to hear words, they were able to see words. They could, there, there was a complete crossover between senses, and they, they saw the words, but you can't, you can't see something which is not visual or audio, but they did. So it's a prophetic experience, which is which which was. So you'd think, okay, well, listen. Um, I want the best chunk of the experience I can get. There's a mountain at the top is where the the height of this experience is embodied by the communion between Moshe Rabbeinu and the Rebbeinu Shalom. So I want to be at the top of the mountain. I don't want to take be, be second best located at the bottom of the hill. Let's take, for example, the Kranium. The Kranium, these people that were, they were set aside to serve Hashem. So what they want to do is run up the mountain. And the Gemara says a strange, or the Chumash says a strange Lashen. It says the following thing. It says, And even the Kranium that approach Hashem, Yiskadashu, they become Kaddish, Kedusha. They're invested with Kedusha, which we said is holiness, which we said is awareness, which is translated as sanctity. So how do they become sanctified? Let's work this out. Barashi, Hanigashim, Hashem, Nakiv Kabanos. The Kranium that come to Hashem, to they come and they work, they serve Hashem when they offer up the offerings in the base of Mikdash. Al Yismechu al Chashivus Omnalois. They shouldn't go up to the top of the mountain. Yiskadashu, they should become Kaddish. Holy. How do they become holy? You mechonim amdom. Stay where you are. They should stay where they are. Stay where they are. Meaning, there was a there was a boundary around the mountain, and they weren't allowed to come up. These are the kohenim. These are the people who are the thirstiest of all to get close to Hashem. And their kedusha was don't budge. What do you mean don't budge? The kedusha should be come closer. 
The Kedusha is darn bad. Ravobi brings out a fascinating point. He says, Kedusha is realizing the limitations of your spiritual capacity. Not everybody can get to the top of the mountain right now. And perhaps never. Kedusha is not an unbridled thirst to form a connection with the Creator. If it's inappropriate for you to be doing that right now, that is not Kedusha. Just like a further understanding of the sensitivity that Kedusha produces, just like Kedusha creates an awareness of the spiritual vibes which are reverberating around you in terms of experiencing them, it also sets a limit when you are not a receptacle for this degree of holiness. Don't go there. And therefore, Ravobi says that these are the kernim, these are the loftiest, and Hashem says to him, Kedusha is dafka, know your place. Know your place. Um, and be prepared to stay there and to know don't try live above your madriga don't try go beyond your level and this is something which people find a little bit counterintuitive because you think what do you mean you know I can understand that it's wrong to do less than what I can but more than what I can that's great no that's not no that's not if a person tries to live at a level which is not appropriate for where he is right now, that is the opposite of Kedusha. Because just like sensitivity produces an awareness of appropriate action in the given context, so the appropriate action is also not to try to take the podium when you're not the appointed speaker. It's not your job. Don't go there. Don't go there. A person has to have a boundary, a sense of limitation when it comes to Kedusha. Now this is a very important lesson often for people when they become inspired in their Avodah Hashem. They may do things which are inappropriate for where they are. A person has to only act in accordance to where I am. And I can't go from being a rampant, rampant club crawler to Tikkun Chatzos into a 24-hour period. I can't do that. Even though you can say, what do you mean? It's a Gzair Shava. Chatzos, Chatzos. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, so this, this is a whole new, it's a whole new aspect to Avodah, of serving Hashem. You think, well, you know, I can't daven a too long Shemon Esrei. It's, it's absolutely untrue. If you try to daven too long Shemon Esrei, that's, that's Tumah. What do you mean, Rabbi? I was there pumping away for 20 minutes. There's actually an interesting story of the Mashkech of Ponevich, of Chatzka Levenstein, where he, um, to educate a particular young man, he he, he did something which one would think is uh, harsh, but <laughs> very, very productive, constructive. There was a bocha that was davening. He was davening away. He was shockling like there was no tomorrow. Again, I don't want to go into the, the exact SPM, shockers per minute that he was reaching, but there was an estimated between 300 and 650. <laughs> 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 he goes over to this bocha that was shockling, not shocking, davening, and he's davening, davening, and the Bokh was in the middle of Ishmael Yisrael, and he goes over to him, and he whispers something in his ear. Needless to say, that aroused the curiosity of the <laughs> Bokhim around, and after this Bokh had finally completed Ishmael Yisrael, they went up to him and said, what did Reb Chatzkel say to you? So he had to shamedly admit that uh, he said, don't forget that there's a God. <laughs> <laughs> a what? A God. Oh. 
In other words, sometimes you get so caught up in your doubling that you forget there's a God. <laughs> it's called inappropriate Kedusha. You try to become so holy that you, you become so holy and you're just so enraptured with your own holiness that you become so holy about your holiness that you realize, oh, there's a God. No, 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 no. No time for Him. I'm too busy being holy. <laughs> and, and it becomes, becomes strange. So a person has to realize, just like there's Kedusha in terms of avoiding, avoiding falling into the pit of, of dislocation from getting close to Hashem, Coming too close is also often inappropriate. You can't, you can't just barge in to a meeting when you weren't invited. It's a big kiddush. You can't barge into Akash Bokhu's. You can't. You, if you're not there, you're not there. You can't, you, can't fake it. you can't fake a relationship. You can't fake it. If you're not there, you're not there. So what should you do? You can get there. You can get there. Slow, steady, steady consistent work will get you there. But you can't, you can't, you cannot. People were made with legs, not wings. So you think, what do you mean? Uh, it's a Shaila. There's a response, of course, Shaila to Yada Katana, and someone, someone asked the Shaila, they said, why weren't people made with wings? Okay, it's not really kind of, a, you have to have interesting, know what was, what was he thinking. When you ask the Shaila, I mean, this conjures up in our mind, uh, see Ari Tenen flying around with these kind of wings like a bee. I think it could be quite cute, you know, like, oh, why don't you go fetch me and like, you'll go out the, the, the kind of the grates over there. <laughs> and collide with it. Oh gosh, I didn't realize that there was a, a window there. Um, having like, Bokhrim buzzing around the base majors, you know, you'd probably have to like, make different light fixtures or something. But mm-hmm. why would people made with wings? So the Yadikatana answers that because it would be way too easy for them to get to our various. So the truth is, according to that reasoning, so we can ask, well, so then why did Hashem allow the internet to be invented? your wings but um, one of the answers is the difference between men and angels is angels have wings mere wings it means that man's progression has to be based on his structure step by step he cannot fly he can walk certain times he can run but that's not his standard mechanism of movement the standard way we move from one place to another is walking so just like we walk to get from point A to point B, when we go from point spiritual A to point spiritual B, we walk. And if you try to run, you're in trouble. If you kind of walk backwards, you're also in trouble. You walk one step after another, after another, after another. And that's how you get there. The minute you start to run, you can tire out and have to like, you know, slide down the floor and recover because it didn't work. And the minute you try to fly, so then you realize as you flop to the ground that you don't have wings. So it's an interesting Bechina aspect of Kedusha that Ravolb is Megalitas in the Koyanim around the mountain of Sinai. Um, and I think that's an idea that we have to, we have to, we have to in- integrate into our life. When, when you're saying a brocha, so, so according to where you are, should you have super kavana? And do you actually know what super kavana means other than strange, strange facial expressions and intense recitation of words that you don't know what they mean? <laughs> That's what it's about? That's what we have English translation for, we know what it means. Oh, of course, once you've got the English translation, then you know what it means. I mean, of course, uh, how foolish of me to think that the holy tongue has depth and meaning in it and the words have specific connotations. I always get confused with that. I mean, why did, why do we even bother learning in Hebrew after all? We got the English translation. Why are we wasting our time? We just download it into our brains directly. You know, sometimes I get really off track. You're 100% right. 100% right. In fact, in fact, I'm, gonna, I'm sure there's a translation to this book. Why am I bothered? I mean, 
mean, after all, translations are definitely the truest reflection of the text. I mean, why would you want to learn the language itself? It's not like it has anything in it. So, um, I'm glad we clarified that, but let's move on to Kedusha. After we discussed the, the tragedy that befell the world, three days of darkness, because they translated the term to Greek, and three days of darkness, I thought, oh, why not? Greek's such a wonderful language. But we'll explore that another day. Thank you, Andrew, for allowing us to explore that.